Welcome to Logos Live. I'm Robert Martin, Director of the City Bible Forum in Melbourne, and I'm your host for the show. Logos is Greek for word or message, and Logos Live engages the Christian message before a live audience in the CBD of Melbourne. And we also aim to have a bit of fun. Who said exploring the big questions of life shouldn't be enjoyable? So what are we to make of work? Challenging, enjoyable, fulfilling, or necessary, painful, and frustrating? In this series of Logos Live, Frustration to Fulfillment, we're asking if it's possible to find something more at work. And today we're considering finances. I am what I earn. And to help us, we have Dr. Jenny George join us. Jenny is an associate professor at the Melbourne Business School. She has a PhD from Stanford University where she studied queuing. She has served as Dean and Director of Melbourne Business School and is now currently leading the education programs as part of the school's Centre for Business Analytics. Please welcome Jenny George. Jenny, you've had a rapturous welcome there. Welcome here today. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Now, you, you've worked at the Melbourne Business School for some time now. Why do people enroll there? What are they hoping to achieve? They enroll for a, a quite a lot of different reasons. Um, more money is one of them, but by no means the only one. In fact, I think probably more people enroll because they're looking to change career right. and have more opportunities, actually, uh, in areas that they think will be fulfilling. One of the key programs offered by the Melbourne Business School is the MBA. So is the MBA a ticket to a bigger salary? Uh, yes, it is, yeah. uh, but not automatically. So in other words, I think that the MBA combined with some really sensible career advice, some good experience and um, great personal skills, I think can be a way to um, definitely improve your chances of promotion. Right. But by itself, it's not necessarily going to you know, be your, your meal ticket. Right. You do need to combine it with a whole bunch of other mm. things. So a lot of people do enrol to try to get the, the bigger salary? I think everyone needs to get some sort of promotion out of it because it costs a lot to do. Right, so I, okay. think, I think everyone uh, wants to see some financial return, but I don't really think it's the primary reason. Right. I think most people do it because they want their career to go in a different direction uh, and they need something that will help them to do that. Now, we do try to have a bit of fun here on Logos Live. It's not a sin to laugh as far as I'm aware. And today's topic is finances. I am what I earn. So I thought we'd have a quick quiz to test you on how much you know about soccer player salaries. Now, I understand that you are an enormous sports fan. Is that right? Uh, I do like some sports, but soccer is not one of them. Right. Well, I'm sorry. You can repent later. That's okay. Um, Anyway, so the first question. Lionel Messi is the best paid football player in the world. How long would it take him to earn the average weekly salary of an Australian worker? So you can do it to the nearest minute. Uh, Well, I'm guessing... I'm guessing he earns in the multi-millions, in fact, probably the multi-tens of millions. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing the average Australian worker earns something like, I think it's in the $35,000 to $45,000 range. It depends on exactly what what you define as as worker. Um, I'm going to guess that it takes him about half an hour. Half an hour. You're close, but not quite. 14 minutes. Lionel Messi, who plays for Barcelona in the Spanish League, earns the equivalent of about $45 million annually. Uh, you wouldn't want to be late for a coffee with him, would you? But, Certainly wouldn't. But he'd probably be paying, you hope? Absolutely. Okay, so, well, I think we'll give that one to you. That's pretty close. Now, in 2012-13, according to Deloitte's Sports Business Group, what was the average weekly wage of an English Premier League footballer? You can answer either in sterling or Australian dollars, maybe to the nearest 10000 I have absolutely no idea. I'm going to go with... Um 
Ooh, let's go with 50,000 sterling. Well, I think the boards would be pleased with you because the average is only £31,000 mm. sterling a week or about 65000 Australian dollars. Now, this compares to the average weekly wage of a person working in the United Kingdom of about £500 or about 1100 Australian dollars a week. And the Prime Minister earns about £2,700 per week. Anyway, okay, the final question is, in 2014, Australia's highest paid footballer of any code was Socceroo Tim Cahill. How much did he earn per year from his contract with New York Red Bulls? I'm going to guess it was around five million. Five, well, five and a half million. Congratulations. <laughs> a huge round of applause. Yeah. Now, this is four million dollars more than the highest paid Australian rules player, which is Gary Ablett. But Cahill was not the highest paid Australian sports star, who's actually basketballer Andrew Bogut, who earned $16.2 million playing with NBA team Golden State Warriors. So Jenny, in our soccer player salary quiz, I think you passed. Congratulations. You, you are a soccer salary extraordinaire. So how do we feel that footballers earn masses more money than our political leaders? Uh, well, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I think it goes to show that salary is a very interesting combination of the value you bring to the company, the um, difficulty of the work you do, and the scarcity of your talent, actually. Mm -hmm. So I think what we say from that is probably politicians work harder in some measurable ways, number of hours you spend and so on, but probably it's much rarer to be able to find people with the skills of an absolutely world-class soccer player. Mm. So I think that's what we're seeing there. So in some ways it's basic economics, supply and demand? Absolutely. Yeah, and soccer players are in a lot of demand. Yes, and very short supply for that, <laughs> that's right, yeah. for that level of talent. Yes, that's mm. right. Now there's also a lot of discussion about how much sports stars earn but also about CEO salary mm. as well. So why do CEOs get paid so much? I think it's the same reasoning, which is uh, a combination of the scarcity of the particular skills that you're looking for, uh, along with the kind of workload uh, and demands that CEOs have. It's interesting, though, because I think there's lots of research out there that suggests that CEO talent is really not as rare as the, the salaries might suggest. Um, and so there's lots of theories about why this might happen. Mm -hmm. At least one of the theories is that disclosure, so the disclosure that comes with um, publicly available information on CEO salaries being out there, disclosure's actually made things worse. And it's made things worse because before that there weren't any obvious benchmarks for CEO salaries. Now that they're disclosed, every board in the country, every CEO in the country believes that in order to prove that they've got a great person on board, they have to pay them at least the average. Now, if everyone is trying to pay at least the average, it doesn't take long for this thing to spiral out of control in an upward direction. And I think that there's some really interesting speculation that that's some of the dynamics that have, have gone on with CEO mm. salaries. We'll talk about that a bit more in just a moment. But a number of years ago, English Premier League footballer Roy Keane admitted he was unhappy with the first contract offer he received from his club, Manchester United. He held out for a better deal and said, I am not naive enough to settle for anything less than a reasonable valuation of my worth. So are football players worth what they're paid, or is it obscene? Well, an economist would answer mm -hmm. uh, that we're worth what someone else would be willing to pay for us. So if Roy Keane reckons that he could walk down the street and get the same thing from another club or get something more, then that's a reasonable... Uh, way to, to describe it. Right. Um, so it's, it's very difficult, though, because 
is this intrinsic value? Is this what he's worth as a human being? Mm. Um, no, and I don't think even the most hard-bitten economist would say that either. But there is some truth to the fact that what somebody out there would be willing to pay you uh, is somehow probably what you're worth in terms of salary. Mm. So do you think that we connect the two, that our worth as an individual is about what we earn? Absolutely. Uh, And it's very difficult, I think, for us to try, on the one hand, to be realistic about what someone will pay us and what, in that sense, our value is to the company, but on the other hand, also not start to have that infect how we feel about ourselves and whether or not this now becomes a proxy for our feeling of value as a human being. So what does the research say then about our feelings about salary? You touched on a little bit about CEO Mm. salaries. Yes. But what does it say more generally about how we view our salary? Um, A lot is to do with peer effects. Mm -hmm. So we feel um, about our salaries mostly um, how we feel is dictated by what the person next to us is earning. So there's very little in the way of absolute numbers that have to do with happiness, with feelings of um, satisfaction, with feelings of self-worth. Most of the time it's to do with what does the person next to me earn? Do I believe that I'm being paid uh, relative to them in a fair and reasonable way? And therefore, do I feel that this is something that, um, that is worth it? And so there's also a sense in which perhaps we can keep score? Absolutely. With our salary? Yes, so um, I think that we can then um, start to feel like if the person next to me got a raise and I didn't, then this is now saying something about me and my uh, my value and whether or not I'm doing a good job. And I think companies play into this because they explicitly link things like performance reviews to salary, which in many ways I think is unhelpful. Mm -hmm. Um, And some companies are actually stopping doing that now because they recognise that what you might get paid may or may not be reflective of the kind of performance that you're you're doing in the company and the performance review you get. So there's some interesting things that are going on there. We do, however, often use it as a way of keeping score for ourselves. And so my feeling of whether or not I've been successful, of whether or not my career is, is taking pace and is being shaped in the way I want it to, those often come down to, am I going to get paid more next year or am I reasonably expecting uh, my pay to increase uh, over the next five years? And those are the kinds of things that we often use as a way of thinking to ourselves, have I been successful? Am I, as a person, uh, actually um, doing something that's worthwhile? And these peer effects also, are they what's motivating perhaps CEO salaries and people like Roy Keane? I think they are, and I think we see the peer effects very specifically with the what, what's been talked about with disclosure. Um, CEOs, though, uh, also are taking into account not only the uh, peer effects uh, amongst other CEOs, but also their relative um, pay uh, compared to other people in the company as well. Um, there is a real sense in which being a CEO gives you a, a sense of responsibility that isn't there in any other job. It was really interesting when I stepped into the dean role at the business school from having done many other jobs that had a lot of similar kind of features and management um, responsibilities. 
being the CEO was a completely different experience. Um, I worried. I stayed awake at night worrying about things. Um, if there was a crisis, even if a fire alarm went off, mm. I was called. There is a level of responsibility for what goes on that is I wasn't prepared for, actually. And the second thing I wasn't prepared for was how lonely it would be uh, because there's not the same level of peer kind of um, sharing of, of that load. Uh, you have to somewhat um, live uh, aloof a little bit from the rest of the company um, or you, you don't do the job well. So I think for all of those reasons, it probably is reasonable that CEOs get uh, a different sort of amount of money than other people. The question is, how much is reasonable? Mm. So what then does money offer? Um, Money offers a lot of things. There's some really interesting uh, stats about national happiness. Um, So uh, over time, whole countries have actually become measurably happier. And it typically happens when they reach a certain level of uh, economic prosperity. And that level of economic prosperity correlates really closely to when their kids stop dying. So when you've got enough money to keep your kids from dying when they're infants, uh, you become measurably happier. After that, there's almost no difference. So in other words, yes, there's a level of financial prosperity that definitely brings uh, a satisfaction to your life that not having it can't bring. Mm. But after that point, it practically makes no difference. So the average city worker sitting out here is no happier than Gina Reinhardt? That's absolutely right. And there's very clear evidence about that. So why do people pursue it then? Uh, I think it's a number of different things. Mm -hmm. But I think it's mostly because uh, we mix up the idea of success with the idea of money. So we want to feel successful. We want to feel that our lives have achieved something. And we confuse that with believing that money is, uh, is the way that we're going to measure that. Um, and it is one of the more measurable things that we can, we can point to. So it's, it's perhaps not surprising we do that, mm. uh, but I think that's the, that's the answer. Now in the 2010 movie The Company Men, Ben Affleck's character Bobby Walker loses his job. As he wrestles with the impact of unemployment, he says to his wife, I'm a 37-year-old unemployed loser. Is his reaction problematic? I actually think being out of work is a different thing again. Mm -hmm. So I think being unemployed um, brings with it a whole set of uh, circumstances that can be quite difficult. I think work in itself is a great thing. Work gives us purpose. It gives us something uh, that can really help shape our lives. It's It's a satisfying thing that human beings have been created to do. So I think being out of work... Um, is something that is likely to make us feel unsuccessful Mm -hmm. and unfulfilled. Um, I think, though, that's really different from saying, for example, um, I'm a 37-year-old loser because I only earn, you know, the average wage and I haven't yet made it uh, above that. So I think those are two different things. Mm. So will money buy us everything we want? Or will money bring us everything we want? Uh, No, I don't think so. No. Not at all. I think it brings us a lot of things, though. I think yep. we shouldn't kid ourselves. Money brings us uh, a high uh, degree of security. Mm-hmm. Um, it brings us freedom from worry. Um, and it buys us uh, quite a lot of time and pleasure. However, 
It only does that under a couple of different scenarios. Firstly, it only does that if the rest of our life's going well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that we also forget that health and other things can't entirely be bought. They can partially be bought. We can buy better health, but we can't completely control that. But I think the second thing that we forget uh, when we do this uh, and when, when we try and use these measures um, is I think we also forget that uh, these are ultimately unsatisfying, um, that even all of those good things um, will, will ultimately not lead us necessarily to happiness. So we can have uh, security, we can have health, we can have all of those other things and still not potentially mm. be happy. Now, a question that has just come in which is interesting relates to that. Is there a level of earning that is so high that it can make me unhappy? I don't think there's evidence that the curve goes downwards again. Mm-hmm. I just think there's no evidence that it goes up. Right, just so, plateaus. Yeah, absolutely. So mm-hmm. I don't think that necessarily a lot of money makes you unhappy. It just doesn't necessarily make you any happier. I think at that point it's completely about other factors. Mm. Another question's come in. Do you think pay is a meaningful contributor to job satisfaction? Given job satisfaction is a relatively new phenomenon, how important is it that we enjoy or find meaning in the work that we do? I don't think pay is necessarily a good indicator of satisfaction at all. I think most people find satisfaction in the kind of um, autonomy they have in their job, whether or not their talents fit with what they're being asked to do, whether they feel like they're able to perform really well in their work. Um, There is some interesting, and now I'll go back to some research again, there's some interesting research about scarcity. So in other words, if you are living in such a way or if you're comparing yourself in such a way with other people that essentially you always feel like you're not quite there, like you're just struggling to catch up, then no matter what you're doing and no matter what you're earning, you will always feel less satisfied. So in other words, you can have a $20,000 a year job and it might be, for example, as a creative artist. You're not earning a lot of money, but on the other hand, uh, this is not something that you're expecting. Uh, You don't expect to earn a lot and your life might be organised in such a way that it's very simple and $20,000 is actually enough to get by. You might be earning $300,000 a year, you have an enormous mortgage and every month you're worried about how you're you're going to get through the next month. The amount of money is almost irrelevant. The $20,000 a year person, if they've constructed their life in such a way that they don't need to worry... Uh, they can actually have enormous job satisfaction. A person on 300000 may uh, feel worried every month about you know, how they're going to make ends meet and, in fact, may not get as much satisfaction from their job anyway. Now, as part of Logos Live, we do reflect on the scriptures, the Logos, and we're going to explore a passage today which speaks about the value of money. It's from the New Testament book of Luke, and Luke is one of the biographies of Jesus' life, and we'll pick it up in chapter 12. Here, someone asks Jesus a question about monetary entitlement in obtaining his inheritance. And Jesus responds by saying, Luke 12, 15, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Why do you think Jesus says this? Well, it's interesting that he's responding to someone who's complaining about his inheritance. Mm -hmm. So, uh, firstly... It's complaining about money that, to a certain extent, he didn't earn. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is com- complaining that other people are getting a better deal than me. So there's, a, there's already in there a sense that somehow I deserve money uh, that uh, is otherwise not coming to me. Mm-hmm. 
So there's an interesting kind of justice issue that, um, that perhaps is raised here. But I think Jesus is, um, goes on later in the passage um, to say uh, there are many things that you can be worried about and possessions are not a good thing to be worried about. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many other things that are, are much more important to put your energy and your time and your thinking into. Mm. So perhaps he's pointing out here as much to this, this guy who's come along saying, you know, tell my brother to share the inheritance or, or yeah. whatever it is. Perhaps he's saying, look, don't spend your time worrying about this. There's other things mm. to be concerned about. Mm. And so what things are more important? Well, Jesus talks about being rich towards God. Yeah, he does that in this passage here. um, That's right. Yeah. Um, And I think here Jesus is saying there are relational things that we can be concentrating on. We can be thinking about how to be generous to other people. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, I think that there's a a big theme here about generosity. But the other big theme actually in the whole chapter, not just in here, is that we've got a very short time on earth. Yeah. And in that short time, are we actually paying attention to things that God cares about or are we paying attention to things that we care about? Mm-hmm. And I think in this passage, Jesus says the, thing, the things that God cares about are loving God and loving our neighbors um, mm. and that those things uh, we can do with our possessions. Mm. Um, but it's not about having them, it's about using them for those purposes. Mm. So in this section, Jesus tells a story, a parable about a rich man who builds big barns to make himself comfortable. And he describes him at the end as being a fool. So is this the reason that he's a fool? Because he's not being rich towards God? I think this is a particular passage that Jesus is using to talk about. I mean, he, he dies. So this is what happens. He builds these big barns. He dies the possessions don't help him at all. And here I think Jesus is actually pointing out that death is the big problem for Mm. us in life. It's the big problem not only actually with our possessions but with everything. Um, We can decide that the thing that's going to make us happy is relationships. We can decide that the thing that's going to make us happy is family. In any of those decisions that we make, death is a big problem. It's a problem for possessions because we can't take them with us. It's a problem for family because those family members we invest in, they'll die as well. And I think actually the big message is you can put your heart into anything, but death is going to to cut you off from that thing. Mm. And so I think Jesus is actually quite clever here in telling this parable to point out that we need to figure out what we think about death and how we're going to live in the face of death. And I think that the answer for Christians is that God says death is not the final word. Mm. And I suppose the problem is also particularly stark for the person who isn't a Christian because, well, if they've got all this stuff, but they still have to face this problem of death. And then what defines them then? But I think, let's be clear, it's actually not only possessions. It's almost anything that you put Mm. your time and your energy into, um, you face that problem. Sure, we can acknowledge that life isn't the abundance of possessions, but why would God be the solution and not something else? Well, I think that in purely human terms, it probably is true that you'll be happier if you put your time and energy into people, relationships, family, rather than money. So I think that that, from a human point of view, is a good strategy. But I think that even that strategy doesn't in the end succeed because then you think about all the people whose beloved spouse gets early onset Alzheimer's, whose child that they, you know, desperately love 
uh, dies and, and you can't do anything about it. These things don't finally earn you happiness. Um, they are probably better to do than possessions, but they don't insulate you from the tragedy of life. And I think that what Jesus is saying is that God is the, the constant, is the only constant in life um, that will be there through thick, through thin, through everything else that won't change and that God actually promises us, not that he will uh, take tragedies away from us, but that somehow he'll transform tragedy through, uh, we don't really completely understand how, mm. but through uh, a resurrection into something that is, is ultimately beautiful. So that's what he's pointing towards in, say, verse 21 there, where he says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. So what you're outlining in some ways is this richness towards God. Well, I think being rich towards God is about saying, how can I use everything I have here? How can I use relationships? How can I use money? How can I use time to love God and to love other people? Because God says that loving God and loving other people are the ways in which, firstly, we can live the good life, Mm. if you like, but they're also the ways in which we connect with God and that we can kind of grab hold of God's promises, which are that through life and through Jesus' death, actually, and then resurrection, that this life is not the the final word. Mm. So how do you think, therefore, in this passage, and Jesus is speaking to the peer effects and the scorekeeping that you mentioned before of us comparing our salary to those around us? I think that the, the man in the parable is clearly doing that. The man in the parable wants to store... Um, possessions. I don't know that it's, uh, we're not told it's peer effects, but certainly it's about trying to have enough security to feel that uh, my life is going to be good, I'm, I'm going to be able to live for a long time uh, without worrying and so on. I think that the peer effects that we see um, also are something where we're trying to put value in ourselves using our own value system. So using our own method of kind of measuring value. Um, We can measure value like the man in the parable because of uh, the security that we've managed to build up. We can measure value based on um, how I feel about myself and whether or not I can earn a lot of money. But um, in this parable, I think Jesus is saying, God can take that all away. And Uh, circumstances can take that all away. Have you actually got a value for yourself that can't be uh, taken away? So Jenny, frustration to fulfilment? I am what I earn? Uh, Absolutely not. So I have to be something more than what I earn or I'm going to be very unhappy either now or later. It might be that if I'm truly scorekeeping with my money that from time to time I feel like I'm doing well. But that will always get taken away, and it'll get taken away in one of two ways. Either I'll stop earning that, I'll go into retirement, and like many people in retirement, I'll immediately become depressed. Um, I will suddenly find myself mixing with people who earn a lot more than me, and even though what I earn used to look great compared to my old group of peers, my new group of peers now makes me feel inadequate. Or I just may not have the capacity to earn that anymore. Um, I may be made redundant or I may not actually be able to find the jobs that keep doing that. So any way I do it, it's a terrifically uh, bad strategy. Or you may die. Or you may die. That's right. Let me leave you with the Logos for the day from Luke 12, 15. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I look forward to you joining us next time for Logos Live. Please thank our guest today, Jenny George. Jenny George.